All right. Ready to go? We're going. Luke chapter 8. I want to thank Paige and the team for leading us again here today. This is, yeah, this is Toby's last week of his paternity leave, so Toby will be back. And I get to make the announcement, but Paige and Matt are now expecting as well, so... They have a little boy on the, on the way in about uh, 20 weeks. So uh, we, uh, our, our kids' ministry people were telling me that, um, you know, they always have a big need for, for more help. And, and our preschool director said, Ryan, our staff is so fertile, it's making my job hard. So, you know, <laughs> just so you know, we have all these new babies coming around, which is a fun thing. Uh, but a uh, good reminder that we want to see a bunch of kids running around, and that, that's, that makes for a great church. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 8. We've been in a series uh, studying through the book of Luke. We'll continue with that for a while as we want to ask the question, what do we learn about Jesus, and what do we learn about ourselves in these stories? Now, one of the things, uh, it's, by way of reminder, is when we look at any story in Scripture, especially stories that tend to be familiar, maybe if you've been around the faith for a while, you read some of these stories and, and, and they sound familiar to you, you might know them well. One of the things that we want to always ask is, why is this story in there? Because there's a reason that certain stories are placed. That we, we don't hear everything that happened in the life of Christ. We don't hear everything that happened with the disciples. So we want to always ask the question, well, why is this particular moment and this story included? Why is this being told? And, and why is it being told in the way that it is? So we're going to do that a little bit today and ask that question of why is this story in there? I, I think of it this way of how many of you had parents who always look for teachable moments with you? Did anyone grow up with a, with a parent who's always, well, I want you to learn. And, and, and so they create moments or they let you learn on your own, whatever it is, even if it's just going outside in the cold without a coat, right? So that you learn your lesson, which kids never do, but it's, it's all right. So my, my parents were very much like that. Both of my parents, as you've probably heard before, are, were farmers. And then my dad joined the army and he was a Green Beret army officer. So I grew up in the context of having that as my background. And those two things combined means that you just have to figure it out. It's learn on your own, learn the hard way, don't complain, just get it done. That, that's kind of how you live. So my dad was always looking for those, well, you got to learn this. You gotta, I, I remember like he would be working on a car, pulling the transmission, say, son, come out here and see how to pull a transmission from a car. I'm like, dad, I'm eight. I don't even know what a, I don't know what a transmission is. Why do I need to, to know how to pull it? He's like, well, you might need to know that one day. Or he'd be changing the oil and, and saying, come out here and learn to change the oil. Think like, Dad, I don't want to learn to change the oil. It's like, you need to know this kind of stuff if you're ever going to drive. So that was kind of, even it was like build walls. Hey, we're going to build a wall. Come and help me so you know how to do it. I remember as a kid, keep thinking, Dad, I don't need to know how to build a wall. There's other people who build walls. And, um, but I learned all those things. And now I find myself looking at my own kids and saying, come out here and learn how to change the brakes on the car. You, in fact, I made a rule in my house that when you cannot get your driver's license until you know how to change the oil and do it on your own. To which, one of my sons, I won't tell you which one, but only one has his license, um, <laughs> came to me and said, Dad, nobody changes their oil on their own anymore. Why do I need to know how to change my oil? I didn't have a good answer except for, well, you need to know this if you're going to drive. And, and, so it, it, and I'm sure one day he's probably going to tell his own kids, unless they're all battery-powered cars, so they may not have oil when he has, but something like that. 
But so we look for teaching moments, and, and there's always a reason for it. And so when we look at these stories of Jesus, we need to say, what is he trying to teach? Because his events, his experiences with his disciples were not random. They were not by chance. They were to prove something, to teach something that they could learn about him or learn about themselves. So with that in mind, let's read the story today in the Luke chapter 8. Beginning in verse 22, and you're welcome if you like to use your digital version. You're always welcome to do that. If you uh, want your own copy of a Bible and you don't have one, we have them in the back. And it is our gift to you if you'd like one. Luke chapter 8, verse 22. The story goes like this. Now, on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat. And he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, Jesus fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, we are perishing. And he got up, he rebuked the wind and surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this, that when he commands even the winds and water, they obey him? So that's a story that we're looking at here today. And again, as I said, for many of you, maybe this story is very familiar. But this story, we need to ask and understand what's really happening to get the deeper meaning in this. Because growing up, and and once I became a Christian, I'd read stories like this, and I, I would read it and think, well, that's cool. If I'm ever, you know, in a boat in a big storm, okay, Jesus can calm the waves. That's, that's the lesson that I thought. But we want to know what is really happening here. So a couple things for it. As it starts off, we want to understand the context. The first thing we need to know is when Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, let's go to the other side of the lake. For those of you who like to take notes and write in your Bibles, I want you to circle other side of the lake. This is significant to this story. So anytime in scripture when a location is mentioned, or a journey is mentioned, you want to ask, well, what's, what's, what's about that place? Why do we need to know that? Well, here we want to know, what's the other side of the lake? What is so significant about that? And I want to share a map with you. For those of you who don't understand maps, just smile for a minute. The rest of you, I want to help you understand a little bit. This is the Sea of Galilee, and the, and, and the, the, the Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Galilee, however you want to look at it, is about 40 miles if you were to drive all the way around the outside of it. So not huge, but not small. And most of the ministry that that we read about throughout the New Testament revolves around the area on the very tip, the top of there, where somebody dropped a pin. I think that's where Jesus was in the boat. Um, But so you have You have the north part where you have Capernaum, Bethsaida, and then to the left of your screen, which is the west side of the lake, those are most of the towns where we read a lot about Jesus. Uh, We we know that he did a lot of ministry. In fact, Nazareth was to the west of that even, just a little bit to the left of your screen up there. So that, in that region from the very top of it, the north side of the lake and the west side, was what we refer to, when you read it in scripture, of Galilee. That's the region of Galilee. Today we kind of think of the whole area, but that was roughly when you think of Galilee. Now Galilee was known to be a very religious and very Jewish segment of the population. Now there is Tiberias, which is on the west side of the lake. That was a Roman town built and named after the emperor Tiberius. But for the most part, that whole region was called Galilee. In fact, a lot said that this was, some even called this the, the area of the 12 or the 12 
remnant tribes. And so the people from Galilee were kind of in competition with those in Jerusalem, thinking that the, the faith had been so politicized down in Jerusalem that they were the pure remnant of Israel living there. So they're very religious, very uh, uh, committed to their faith, to their nation. In fact, most of the revolts started with people who lived in Galilee um, against the Greek Empire than the Roman Empire. It started in this region. Now, the thing we need to know for this story now is the other side of the lake. So on the east side of the lake, starting in the north all the way down to the south there, and that's the Jordan River and that river that leaves it, that whole region there, you see a town called Hippos, you have Gadara. Those are towns that we know of, we read about in Scripture called the Decapolis. There was ten cities that were part of this region. Now this region was the other side of the lake. This was very much non-Jewish. It was actually, in fact, it was Hellenized. It was a, these were Greek cities that spoke Greek, that worshipped Greek gods. There were Romans there as well. But it definitely had a very Greek influence that was left over from when the Greeks were in that area. Even when the Romans conquered Greek, uh, Greece, the Greco Empire, a lot of them moved to these cities. So this was very much Hellenized, very non-Jewish. Uh, they would be, it would be considered to be unclean lands and cities and a place you do not go. In fact, in that city right there, you have Hippos there. Um, this city, uh, just two years ago, they found this bronze mask, and it was used in the worship of the god Pan. So Pan is, if you are familiar with like the Chronicles of Narnia, that's Tumnus. It, it, it's a half goat, half man. And they have a 2,000-year-old bronze mask from the time of Jesus that was found and dug up two years ago in that city. And they used it to worship Pan. Now, Pan was a god of the woods and of pan, where we get our word panic. And also, uh, there was a lot of uh, kind of sexual uh, worship that went on with Pan. So this is not where you take your Hebrew kids on a field trip. <laughs> so when we hear Jesus say, let's go to the other side of the lake, his disciples would look at him and think, like, what do you mean the other side? You don't mean like the other side of the lake, do you? You don't mean over there where the Greeks are, do you? You don't mean the non-Jewish place where they worship false gods, where the land is unclean. You mean that other side of the lake? And Jesus said, yeah, let's go to the other side of the lake. To the land that, yes, you think you'll be unclean if you go there. And by the way, this sets up next week's story as well. The other part of this that we know is in this region, they, the worship of these Greek gods is they would sacrifice chickens and a lot of pigs. In fact, pigs were their preferred sacrifice. You'd sacrifice a pig and then you'd eat it. And so eating pigs was an unclean animal and something you do not do as a Jew. Next week, that will come to life in the story about what happens when they get to the other side of the lake. But this week, it's let's go to the other side. So we want to keep that in mind. The other thing we want to keep in mind with this story is this. They start sailing across and going across the lake. Now, just so you can, I have a couple pictures of the Sea of Galilee today, just so you have an idea of the size of it. So again, we're not talking about the Mediterranean Sea. We're talking about a lake, um, pretty large, but, but not, you know, and this is from the other side. This is a picture taken from the other side of the city, Tiberias. And then the next one, uh, this is actually a city, this is where they found that bronze mask in Hippos. And uh, 
This was probably the city where Jesus is referring to when he said a city on a hill cannot be hidden because it was high on a hill and you could see it from everywhere on the, in the Galilee region. And so uh, on the other side of the lake would be Galilee that, in our story. So this is just some context. Now, to understand, again, first century Jews, the other thing you need to know is they hated water. They just didn't like big bodies of water. They had a superstition about it. And even Jewish fishermen often wouldn't go in the middle of the lake. They would stay on the edges because they were afraid of what happened in the middle of the water. If we read throughout the entire Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, we find time and time again when they refer to the deep seas, there's this a fear, and they call it the abyss and the deep. And they believe that out of the deep, the center of the water, was the entrance to the abyss. And they even used this, they had this uh, serpent, dragon, kind of sea creature that they believed was in there. They called it the Leviathan, which was just symbolic of evil. And we find it pop up again to represent Babylon and Rome. And so to a Jewish person, the middle of a lake, those of you who don't like history, by the way, we're getting there. We're getting there. Just keep smiling. But but you have to know, like when they'd see this in the middle of the lake, they had this great fear because they thought only evil things happen out there. Now, the other thing they believed about deep water or water was that God often used it to bring punishment. If you think back to the stories that would be very familiar to the Jewish people, think of the flood with Noah. They think of God punishes and brings his judgment on the earth through a flood. Think of the Israelites leaving Egypt out of slavery and crossing the Red Sea. God uses the Red Sea to thwart the plans of the Egyptians and their army. Even in one of their revered prophets was Jonah, and Jonah flees from God. He's running away from God, and he's in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and a big storm rages, and we learn something about their culture when everyone in the boat asks this question. Because there's a big storm, they said, who is in trouble with God? (laughs) Somebody here did something that's causing this storm, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to throw that person in the in the ocean as a sacrifice, essentially, to appease God and so we can have smooth sailing. So these are the thoughts that would be in the head of a first century Jew. Okay? With all that in mind, now let's go back to the story. They are going to the other side of the lake where the disciples were probably saying, Jesus, probably not a good idea. And then a storm kicks up. They're thinking at this point, wait a minute, I told you. And they look back and Jesus is asleep in the boat and they're probably saying, I told you we shouldn't be going to the other side of the lake. And now Jesus is asleep and there's a storm. He doesn't even realize that we are going to drown, some of your translations say. That they wake Jesus up and say, do you not care? We are drowning here. What are you doing, Jesus? And they were thinking, God is punishing us for going Somewhere we shouldn't be going. We shouldn't be going here to the other side of the lake. Now we're going to be punished. And you can almost see, and I've always wondered about this story, was Jesus really asleep? Or is Jesus, you know, he took a nap in the back of the boat. And this is not even a big boat. I've shown you pictures before, right? We're talking like 15 feet. So it's not like they had to go down, go find Jesus, you know. They saw him. I always wondered, is, is Jesus kind of doing the thing you do as a parent sometimes where you act like you're asleep? <laughs> and you listen to your kids doing something, and maybe you look just to make sure there's no fire or knives going on. And, and so he's kind of looking like, let's see what they do. <laughs> the waves are raging and going over the boat, 
And Jesus is back there asleep. And they come to him and say, Jesus, seriously, are you not aware we are dying? The boat is being filled with water. Now, I don't know what they, they probably said, can you help? Can you start shoveling some water out? Can you do something? We don't see what they ask, but Jesus gets up, and I almost see him kind of get up, almost like he probably even played it up, you know, rubs his eyes a little, like, oh, what? You know, and he looks out and says, be still. And everything got calm. What would that be like to be in the boat at that point? <laughs> I mean, you already thought you're going somewhere you shouldn't go. The storm starts raging, and then Jesus calms the sea. Now what? <laughs> now what are you thinking? Does everyone just go back to paddling and just go, thanks? <laughs> and they just keep paddling across the boat. And all Jesus said is, where's your faith, guys? Does he go back to sleep? What happened at this moment? But what we knew, do know is they look at each other, and I don't know if while they're paddling, they kind of whisper to one another. It says that they're, feared, they're filled with fear and awe and wonder, and they start saying, who is this guy? Even the wind obeys. Even the waves listen to him. Who is this? So what do we learn from this story? What is it that we're supposed to learn about God and ourselves from this story with all this in mind. I have a few things to think about here. The first thing I want, we want to look at is I want to look at God in the wind. God in the wind. See, in the story, it would be natural for the Jews, the first thought was, we're going somewhere we're not supposed to go, and now the wind starts picking up, and the waves start picking up. So a natural thought that they had was, this is, this is God saying we're going the wrong way. This is God saying, you are on the wrong path. If you keep going on that path, you are going to drown. And maybe they did think of Jonah. Until Jonah said, it's me, and jumps into the water, they were in the raging sea. So they were thinking, we are going the wrong way. But I believe in this story, we learn something about God in the wind. And that is, the wind doesn't always determine God's will. When the waves pop up in our lives, it doesn't always mean anything about God's will against you. Sometimes you will step out in faith, and what this story promises us is when you are perfectly in line with God, sometimes you will have a storm because that's His will. And don't confuse the wind and the waves with God's will. Now, are there times when He will use circumstances to steer us? I believe so. I do think there are times He steers us. I think there's sometimes we create our own storms, <laughs> And sometimes we say, God, why aren't you with me? And he's going, because you're being an idiot. You go, <laughs> But the wind and the waves don't always determine God's will. In fact, as I said, sometimes if you're perfectly in step with God, you're going to experience the wind and the waves. That's what God wants in this story. There's a purpose for it. Imagine if every time we felt like we were walking with the Lord, and we faced opposition, and we just stopped, because we said, well, maybe God wants, if it's not God's will, if it's God's will, it would be smooth water, right? But we'd miss out on so much. Think of the missionaries. If they gave up every time when they're bringing the message of Jesus, every time something didn't go well, if they said, whoa, whoa, whoa this must not be God's will, it's not smooth sailing for me. Things aren't going the way. Every time you stepped out in faith to forgive someone, 
who you know is not going to receive it well, who's not an easy person, but you believed the right thing to do is to step out in faith and offer the forgiveness. What if when they don't receive it well, you think, well, maybe God didn't want me to be nice. Maybe God didn't want me to offer forgiveness. Maybe you extend love to someone who doesn't receive it. Does that mean that he's not calling us to walk that way because the water wasn't smooth? No. So sometimes God calls us into rough water. I think of, we spent a season of our lives as church planters, and I think of people who begin new ministries and and go to places and, and, and try to just walk with the Lord if every church that ever faced opposition to what they are doing stopped. There would be very few churches left. There would be not very many communities of people reaching out. So the wind and the waves don't always determine God's will. I think of the Apostle Paul. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's Paul, who probably has lived one of you know, the more highlighted Christian lives you could ever imagine. And in chapter 11, he says, oh, well... I've lived my life for the Lord, and so here's what I've received. I've been beaten three times with 39 lashes. I've been put into prison a few times. Uh, once they tried to stone me to death. Um, I've gone hungry. I've been shipwrecked and lost in sea. I've been bitten by a snake. You just look at all this, and you just think, okay, that's not smooth water. And then he goes on to chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, and he says, but all these things I'm going to boast in my weaknesses, because when I'm weak, God is strong. And the point isn't me. You see, when we start thinking it's about the wind, the wind and the waves are about us, it stops being about God. So they do not always determine God's will. The next thing I see in the story is we want to look at God in the storm. What happens when we face those rough waters in life? Maybe waters that are, are relational, maybe it's health issues, maybe it's just challenges of walking the Christian faith. What do we learn about God in these moments? Uh, I love what Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 33. He gives two promises here. I have this on the screen for you. Jesus writes, and he says, uh, These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. That's great. We can have peace in Jesus. Now he gives two promises. In this world you will have tribulation, or some will say you will have trouble. But take courage, for I have overcome the world. You see the promise that he gives us here? You will have trouble in this world. Isn't that great? Why don't, why don't evangelists all lead with that? <laughs> you want to be a Christian? I want to make a promise. You will have trouble in this world. <laughs> You're going to face trials. It's not always going to be easy. So Jesus promises that. He promises that some days the water won't be smooth. But then he says, but take heart because I've overcome the world. See, the God in the middle of the storm of everything is we can trust that Jesus somehow is there with us in the storm. Now that doesn't, it's hard to know. It's hard for these disciples at this point to trust that. Just this last month, a a friend of mine who's a lead pastor at a church up in Oceanside, uh, a few years older than me, but still has young kids, and he was uh, at Disneyland with some of his kids, and everything went well, but two days later, uh, he had a massive stroke and lost all of his movement in his left side of his body. He lost his vision, and he lost his speech. Um, and by really a miracle of God, it's already been coming back, and he still doesn't have all of his movement. He doesn't have all of his vision. His speech is actually doing pretty well. But I just talked with him a couple days ago and asked that question, like, how are you doing? And, and he said this, and I love it. He said, Ryan, 
all these things that we preach about on Sunday morning, what I've learned is it's true. He said, I've been telling people that God will be your peace, that you can lean on him and there's no reason to fear. And he said, then everything that my life is based on is ability to speak, to see, to stand up in front of people, to be able to walk, to, to function regularly. All of that was taken away. And he said, I, I, I want you to honestly know this, that in that moment, I just said, Jesus, I'm excited to see what you want to do now. I want to trust that you must be in this. I believe it. And he said, I felt such a great peace and I didn't experience fear in this moment. He said, what we preach is actually true. Well, I was so encouraged by that. And he's a great guy, an amazing man of faith. And it's not easy to say that in those moments. And I can only hope that I would have the courage that he had in that moment to say, okay, okay, Lord. This is a storm. <laughs> this doesn't seem to be the way I want things to go. So, okay. You said I can trust you, so I will. What are you going to do with this? Isn't that an amazing response? So one thing that we learned from this is Jesus is reminding us that he's there in the storm. The, the last thing is this. Oh, and I want to share this with you too. Psalm chapter 93, verse 4 says this. Mightier than the thunder of great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Wouldn't that be great if you were in that boat and you were remembering those psalms? Psalm 65, verse 7 says this, Who stilled the roaring of the seas and the roaring of the waves? We have this reminder that God is there in the boat, in the storm. The next one is this. We'll get to that verse in a minute. We haven't gotten to that one yet. But the next thought is this. We have God in the waves, God in the uh, storm, and then God in the boat. God in the boat. Jesus is in here, and he looks at him, and he says, where is your faith? Have you thought about that? What, is, what were they to have faith in in this moment? What was it that they were expected to believe about God in this moment when the waves are coming over? See, because we read that we have the privilege of reading this story after it's happened, we already have it all packaged, and so we know the end of it. But in the moment, what do you think Jesus was asking them? Where is your faith? Were they supposed to say like, oh, yeah, I guess we should have known you could calm the waves. I guess we should have known. What is it that they didn't have faith in here? And that's why I call this God in the boat. See, because what I think he was really asking them is, do you still not get who I am? Do you still not quite understand who I am? And you could show that verse there in Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. It says this, O Lord God of hosts, who is like you? O mighty Lord, your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. See, in this moment, Jesus actually demonstrated to them that he was indeed God in the boat. And he was reminding them in this moment, he was saying, where's your faith? He was saying, are you guys, do you really think the abyss is the thing to be afraid of here? Do you really think there's something that's going to come out of this ocean and get you? Do you really think that there's something more powerful than me? Did you forget that two weeks ago, I just raised a guy from the dead and I just healed a sickness? And did you forget these things that I'm doing? Where is your faith? Do you still not believe? who I am. Are you still having trouble understanding 
that God is in the boat with you. One of the things that we say here is we want to be, and we talked about it last week, part of our vision is a church community that is a family of disciples being transformed by the good news of Jesus. And when we say that, we want to be people who the more and more we understand what the good news is, the whole story of who Jesus is, the more that changes and shapes who we are. And we want to grow in our belief in who he is. See, there's things about him we have no problem believing. We have no problem, well, I don't. I don't have a problem believing he'll forgive me for my sin. But sometimes I have a problem believing that he's present with me in trouble. What are the areas in your life where you need to grow in your belief in God and who he is and his promises? When are the moments where you need to trust that it's God in the boat with you? That Jesus really is the creator of all things. That in Genesis chapter 1, we see the story of God, and the pre-incarnate Christ, speak the word and he speaks things into existence. Here, why would it be any surprise to the disciples that he could speak to the waves and calm them. Now, I know in the modern world, in our modern minds, we're thinking, Ryan, there had to have been a logical explanation. You know, the wind died down. I don't care. <laughs> sure, maybe there was. Or maybe God was in the boat and he calmed the seas because he created those seas. God's in the boat as we walk through our lives. That Jesus, it's not just a figure. It's not just a historical guru. Jesus is not just a good mythological story or figure. This is not the God Pan that they were going to the town where they were worshiping him. This is the creator of the universe in the boat. And he looked at them and said, do you not yet believe this? That God's in the boat with you. How much would that change the journey if they fully could understand that? How much would that change? In fact, the waves start raging when you're paddling and you just go like, hey God, you want to do something about this? I mean, how much would that change that? Instead of, we're about to drown. Even if they were about to drown, they could say, if this is what you want, I'm in. See, Jesus was saying, do not yet trust who I am. And that's the question that we have this morning. Can we trust in God's character? Can we trust in his promises? Can we trust him in those seasons? And they're going to change. Those seasons change for us. We're never going to fully be there. You might learn one part about God, and then you realize, man, I still have a lot to learn. That's, a good, news. That's good news. I think one person once told me, if we could explain everything about God, then he probably wouldn't be a very good God. But there's always something more to learn. So this morning, the question for you is, can you trust that God is in the boat? That Jesus is who he says he is? There's areas of your life you can grow to trust him. I think of even in our life, I'm going to invite the worship team uh, to start making their way up. I think even in, in our life, I look back and, and the moments along the way when you, th- you think and look back and, you know, two of our kids, our very first son, was, when he was born, was premature and was in the NICU for a couple weeks. And I remember getting to the point where every day when we'd go and you have to scrub in and put on all the, the gear and we'd walk to go see our son. And the only way to see him was to go through the whole process. It was, you know, we were new parents. We were young. We were like 12. <laughs> <laughs> but it was one of those tests, one of those first things that can you still trust God in this moment? 
And I remember how frustrating it was when you see other kids come and go. But then to realize, too, ours was going home, and there were some who were in there just hanging on for life. Happened with our third kid. He was in the ICU for a whole month. The same thing. And I just kept thinking, well, one of us needs to learn something here. (laughs) What is it for you? What are those moments? Sometimes they're not even as intense. I remember when we first moved here. It took me a year. We sold our home in Orange County, um, and, and we moved down here. And it took me a year to get over the fact that when we moved down here, the prices just went up and we couldn't buy. And I just really wrestled, wrestled with God and said, you know, Lord, why did we, why'd you let us sell that house? Now we can't, we, we, if we would have kept it at least. And it took me a whole year for God to say, I'm working on you. Can you trust me even in this? Are you going to be okay? Is that, is your whole, everything in that house? Is that your identity? Is that who I am to you? And it was just so freeing to grow past that. So in this room, my guess is we have hundreds of different stories of what we don't quite believe about God. We have all kinds of different things that we need to learn to grow and to trust who he is and to trust in his promises that he'll be with us that he cares about us, he'll love us, his promise that you will have trouble, (laughs) but that he's overcome the trouble, and that God's in the boat. The last part of this story that I really love, and and as you kind of ponder what is it where you need to grow in your belief, is the last part of it is said they were filled with fear and wonder. This wasn't they were now afraid of Jesus, but now they were in awe of Jesus. See, the response that we have when we realize that God's in the boat, that Jesus is who he says he is, isn't a, a response that says, okay, now, now what? It's a response of worship and giving glory to him. Because the point all along is that Jesus wanted people to know who he was. And so the response was that they were able to declare who he was. And this faith will show up. This learning moment shows up in their lives you'll see in the months to come. So we're going to end our time here, and I want you just to ponder and wrestle with the question, God, what are the areas of your life where you need to trust him more, where you need to learn to grow in your unbelief? And know this, he knows that you have doubt, he knows that you can be skeptical, he knows that you have fears, he knows that it's not easy. He's okay with it, he can deal with that. He knows you have unbelief. But let's surrender that to him now, and then let's respond by turning the glory back to God. Because this story is about how big and good he is. So our response needs to be one of awe and wonder and worship that he would even consider us. So let's end our time together just declaring worship to God. Pray with me. God, we thank you so much. I thank you that, Lord, you have a a way of teaching us and growing us and shaping us. And so, Lord, I, I, I thank you that this story reminds us that you not only journey with us, but, Lord, you even direct our paths and our steps, and you go with us. But I thank you, Lord, ultimately, too, that it reminds us that you are the creator of the universe, and, and we have access to you, that you are, quote, in the boat with us, that you do not stand far off, that we can't come to you in our times of trouble, that we can't lean on you when things are hard, We can't go to you with our questions, Lord. You are with us, and you are over all. 
And so, Lord, would you receive our worship now as we respond to you, thanking you for being who you are. So we give you this time.